2 Corinthians 13 is where we'll be. Okay, well, I'm going to ask some of you to identify yourselves here at the beginning of the sermon today by a show of hands. Who enjoys taking tests? Who are the sick puppies in the room? You've seen them? Mark them. Well, tests can be really fun, but I would say that all of us, whether test takers or not, uh, people who enjoy it or not, we would all agree that tests are less and less enjoyable when there's more and more on the line. Uh, so we, Melissa and I take tests every morning. We've got these little online games that we play. There's a geography one that we play. There was, of course, Wordle that was a craze that swept the nation last year, and everyone was playing that little five-letter Wordle game on their phones for a bit. Uh, but there's one for geography called Worldle that we really enjoy playing because we're really dorky. And uh, we, we enjoy doing that every day, and it's, there's not a lot on the line except our pride with one another. But when the tests get higher and higher stakes, right? I, I remember when I took my driver's test, how nervous I was, and I botched it like 10 seconds in. I don't know, maybe it was like two minutes. It wasn't long. She said, okay, turn around, let's go back. And uh, that was the end of that. Um, I, I hated that feeling. I hated the pressure leading up to that. I hated failing that test. We understand when there's more and more on the line, tests are less and less fun, aren't they? Well, Paul, the apostle, is commissioning the Corinthians and, by extension, all believers to test ourselves. And there's a lot on the line with this test that we're going to be looking at today. In fact, you could say it's the most important test that you could ever go through. It's the most important, most intense examination that could possibly exist. And we'll get to that down in verses 5 and 6. But before we get into that, I want us to cover verses 1 through 4 because there's a lot of good stuff in there too. So let's look at the first four verses of chapter 13. Paul says to these believers in the city of Corinth, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, Yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Well, Paul says here in the opening verse of this final chapter that he's coming to them again. And it's the third time. So a very, very quick review of Paul's visits to the Corinthian church. First was his initial visit where the church was planted, and you can read about that in Acts 18. He was there for some time. By God's grace, the church was initiated, and it's been successful uh, to some degree, though they have big challenges. His second visit was an impromptu visit, a very quick visit that he was not planning on, and it was a sorrowful visit, a very sad visit that he had to address sin. He had to uh, speak to them about some really difficult things. He says earlier in this very letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he says he's determined for his own sake that he would not come to them in sorrow again. That means that the last time he was there, it was in sorrow. They were having to deal with very difficult things. They were addressing sorrowful things, and we'll talk more about that momentarily. 
But then he says, there's a third visit coming. Verse 1, this is the third time I am coming to you. There's an upcoming visit on Paul's calendar if the Lord wills, and the Lord did will. He actually did make that trip. But you kind of get the feeling here that this is um, almost like a, a warning shot that he's firing, saying, get ready. And those of you who have worked in bigger companies where there are higher levels of command, you know what it's like when the district manager's coming, or the vice president, or an executive is going to be in town, and people know it, and it's like, okay, we got to clean everything up and act like we're not who we are. <laughs> because the boss is coming, right? That's like a really scary thing. I imagine the Corinthians felt that to some degree, but I know Paul didn't want it to feel like Paul loved them. Paul was an apostle. He, he was used by God to start that church. He wanted the absolute best for that church. He wanted to have a loving visit with them. But at the same time, he tells them here, look, I'm going to have to address the difficult things. If I come and find things out of place, as I've warned you, I will have to address that with you. And he uses that language of saying, I will not spare anyone. He also quotes the Old Testament here in verse 1 by saying, every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is from Deuteronomy that he's quoting. He, of course, is the apostle who taught that we are not under law but under grace. He even explained that in great detail in chapter 3 of this letter. But he's using wisdom from the law, as we all should, looking into the law of God, seeing it to be very good and applying wisdom to our lives. And he's not saying that this third visit will count as the third witness, but he's saying that he will establish all the facts there by having two or three others with him. That Titus or Barnabas or some other faithful missionary companion will be with him as he questions the Corinthians. We know, of course, that the Lord Jesus incorporated this wisdom when He went through the steps of church discipline, that the first thing you do is go talk to the person who offended you and let that person know of his or her sin. But if that doesn't work, take two or three with you and have another conversation with two or three there present in addition to you that you would have witnesses to what happens. And then if the person still doesn't hear you, you take it to the church. So two or three witnesses is something that comes up several times in the New Testament as a very good principle of wisdom that we could apply to multiple situations. Well, in this visit that Paul is planning on, where he will have two or three with him, there are several things that he wants to do. There are, there are things that he wants to accomplish, and these things do get done. It appears as though in the timeline of Acts, this very next winter after this letter was written, Paul stayed in Corinth. He wintered in Corinth for three months. And fun fact, that's where he wrote the book of Romans. He was in Corinth when he wrote the book of Romans. And so what's really cool about the book of Romans is not only did the churches in Rome and the surrounding area get that letter, but as he was writing it, I'm sure the Corinthians were there looking over his shoulder saying, can we Xerox that before you take off? Because that's good stuff, right? So I'm sure he explained all kinds of things that are in the book of Romans to the Corinthians too. And we, of course, knew, know that they needed it. Well, there were three main things that I think he was seeking to accomplish in this trip that he was going to take, this next visit to Corinth. The first would be a rebuke of the false teachers. There, of course, were these false apostles, the so-called super apostles in Corinth, and Paul has had a desire for some time to rebuke them and remove them from the church. It's a desire that's been delayed, but now it's going to be the time to do such a thing. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 18, Paul said this, "'Some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon.'" 
if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? That was on his heart the whole time, was to come and address those who are arrogant. But we also see it in this letter, just a page or two back in chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 10. Look at what Paul says about his plans here, starting in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 10, 7, it says, You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent such persons we are in also indeed when present. He's letting them know, these people who have been mocking him, they're going to find out really who he is when he shows up. So he's setting up quite a meeting here. His handling of the false teachers in his next visit was very, very critical. And he says in our text today in verse 2 that he will not spare anyone. That seems like such strong language, doesn't it? But Strong sin requires a strong response, and they had the apostle of God there for them to meet this challenge. It's like he's setting up a meeting of Elijah proportions. Do you remember in the Old Testament, the showdown between the gods, where the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal were having this showdown, and they were going to call fire down from heaven, and of course the prophets of Baal were dancing around all day trying to make it happen, trying to make fire fall from heaven, and Elijah was mocking them in a holy way. And then Elijah gets this big log and he pours water over it. He has the men pour water multiple times and soak it down. And he calls down fire from heaven and Yahweh answers and it just zaps all that moisture and it goes up in a flame. It's almost like Paul is setting up something like that where they're going to get together and that will happen. And I would say the false prophets thought that's what Paul had in mind. But what's amazing is that Paul doesn't plan on calling down heaven's fire. Paul doesn't plan on a show of strength. Paul plans on showing the power of his God through weakness. And this is just amazing stuff. It's not going to be through fire raining down from the sky, but through the indwelling Christ who imparts his power through meekness and gentleness and self-control. The apostle plans on showing up the false teachers with the fruit of the Spirit. It's an amazing thing. So the first thing he wants to do is rebuke the false teachers. The second thing he wants to do, of course, is discover what other sin is still there. He wants to find out what filth remains in Corinth, what is still soiling the church's purity. And they had many, many stains. There was a lot of dirt that needed to be cleaned up in Corinth. Again, in the first letter... 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 1, Paul says, It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant 
and I'm not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Gross immorality happening in the church in Corinth that was not being addressed. There were many things. This was just one example that Paul used that was being reported about them. It wasn't a secret. People knew, and it got back to the Apostle Paul. Well, he warned them in that spontaneous visit, his second visit. Look at what he says in verse 2. He warned them about this, saying that he's saying in advance to those who have sinned and to all the rest that when he comes again, he will take care of these issues if they have not addressed them. Sin in the church is to be urgently addressed. They are not to be arrogant about it. They're not to be uh, sitting on their hands, but they are to urgently address the sin and remove those who will not repent from their midst. Now, there is some good news in this where it seems as though when Paul was there during his sorrowful visit that that particular man was removed, that the man of 1 Corinthians 5 was removed from the church, and that he had become repentant. Paul talks about that in this letter back in chapter 2. And it also seems as though the Corinthians had already been repenting of some of the things that were going on in the church. If you go back with me to chapter 7, Paul talks about the good news of their repentance that he had heard. Apparently, this wasn't complete repentance, but there was some repentance that was taking place in the church. 2 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 8, Paul says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that a letter, that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Well, Paul had reason to rejoice because the sorrow that they were showing was a sorrow of repentance to do the will of God. It was happening to some degree in the church. But what he's saying now in chapter 13 is that there are some who haven't repented, and those people I will have to still address. Notice he says in verse 2, those who have sinned in the past. And what is implied here is that they have also not yet repented. We looked at this last week at the end of chapter 12. Look at the verse right above this, chapter 12, verse 21, where Paul says that he's afraid that when he comes to them, he's going to find those who have sinned in the past, there's that phrase again, and have not repented of their impurity, immorality, and sensuality. Well, if they had not yet repented, Paul was to address them by enacting discipline, by seeking to remove them from the church. It can seem harsh, it can seem cold, it can seem mean, But what could be more important, removing impurity from the bride of Christ or making sure everyone doesn't have their feelings hurt? We must protect purity above all things, shouldn't we? And we should do so with love, we should do so with respect, we should do so with gentleness. But what's most important is holiness. And you can have a happy church. You can have a church that's full of all kinds of smiling people and they're dead inside. You see that with the churches that Jesus spoke to in Revelation. You have this reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. No one had their feelings hurt, but they were dead. 
The church in Corinth was on that same path, and what was most important was that sin was addressed, that sin was removed as far as it depended on them. But it wasn't just a rebuke of false teachers and a discovery of sin. Paul, in his heart of hearts, wanted to see this church built up in faith, built up in love, encouraged. He wanted to see this church instructed in the truth and full of love. He wanted to spend significant time with them after addressing these issues to edify them. We can see this in this letter way back in the first chapter, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 15 and 16. The apostle says to them that he intended at first to come to them so that they might twice receive a blessing. He wanted to pass their way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia come back to them and be helped on his way to Judea. He wanted to give them a second blessing. In his first visit, when the church was planted, that was a blessing for them. Well, he wanted that kind of experience again, not to replant the church or anything like that, but to encourage them to have a sweet visit. And yet all he's had is a sorrowful visit. In chapter 2 of this letter, he goes on to say, again, verse 1, he determined not to come to them in sorrow again. Verse 2, Paul says, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Does this sound like a guy who just wants to beat up on people? No way. He loved them dearly. And because of his love for them, he wanted there to be holiness. He was desirous of mutual edification. And I I think we could say with accuracy here that Paul dreaded the discipline. I mean, we know this as parents, don't we? You don't enjoy discipline. Now, good parents discipline, but good parents don't take pleasure in punishing, disciplining, disciplining their children. I shared this quote with you several months ago now. But this is from Augustine, and I really, really like this. He says, As severity is ready to punish the faults which it may discover, so charity is reluctant to discover the faults which it must punish. I think Paul was full of charity. I think Paul was full of love for this church and was reluctant to discover what they may be doing. Heresy and immorality must be addressed in the church. False teaching, sinful living has to be addressed among us, God's people. But that doesn't mean it's without love. We know that love will abide. There's faith, there's hope, and there's love, and the greatest of these is love. Love will abide. Now, through all of this, his rebuke of the false teachers, the discovery of sin, the edification of the church, there would be powerful evidence of Christ speaking in him. You see, In verse 3, he says, you're seeking proof of the Christ who speaks in me. And Paul has in mind here that they're going to get that proof. They're going to find that evidence. He doesn't see it as an option that they will go without discovering this, but they will see that Christ truly does speak in him. He is, of course, an inspired apostle, apostle called of God, someone who was able to command, instruct the church to write letters with authority to tell the church what they should be doing, what they should be thinking. He was revealing mysteries given to him by God. 
It's true that all Christians have Christ in us, but the apostles especially had this sense of Christ dwelling in them and speaking through them with authority. In that first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 14, verses 37 and 38, Paul says, "'If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized.'" Paul says, "'What I write to you is Jesus Christ's commandment to you.'" Not my opinion, not, you know, just another voice from a man that can just be thrown in with all the other voices. Paul says, this is the Lord's commandment. Christ was speaking in him. And that powerful evidence of this reality was coming, but it was not coming in the way that they expected. Again, I I think the Corinthians expected a showdown where Paul would come with all kinds of signs and wonders that he would you know, cause the false teachers to disintegrate or something, that he would make them uh, die before them, whatever the case may be. But that was not in Paul's mind. In Paul's mind, the evidence of his apostleship, the evidence of Christ in him was going to be seen in his weakness. Let me remind you, back in chapter 12, the same book, just one chapter before, chapter 12, starting at verse 9, remember what Jesus said to him? Paul records that Jesus has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So Paul goes on to say, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul wasn't prepping for this trip to Corinth like Rocky. He wasn't climbing the steps and drinking the raw egg and sweating through his hoodie and all that stuff and saying, we're going we're gonna to have a showdown with these false teachers. That wasn't in his mind. In Paul's mind was, I'm going to be in my flesh so thoroughly and utterly dependent on the grace of Jesus Christ to work through me. I'm going to show up and I am a weak man. They may beat me. They may insult me. They may drag me out. I mean, all that's happened to Paul, right? They may do all of that, but they cannot deny the Christ who is in me, who keeps me going, who keeps me focused, who keeps me with this message, with this gospel. They would get that evidence that they were looking for, but not in the way they expected. David Garland, in his commentary on this passage, he said, meekness and gentleness were not virtues in a Corinthian culture marked by pitched battles for social supremacy over others. Ruthlessly bludgeoning one's social rivals was the rule. They find his weakness distasteful. (laughs) They found Paul's weakness distasteful. He was a weak man, and he demonstrated that in his second visit, his sorrowful visit, when he was mourning over their sin. It was characterized by sorrow, even though they expected fireworks. And I think... We can relate to this quite a bit in our American culture today because it is uh, now election season and we have so-called debates that are happening all the time. And I say so-called because they are not debates. They are, I don't know what they are, circus acts maybe. Um, It's just utter nonsense. It's a shouting match. And that's kind of what we expect. And I would say if we're honest with ourselves, it's what we want. We want people to get up there and to, like, I don't know, be loud, boisterous, 
to set other people straight, to shout, to point, to blame, to accuse, to put other people down, to be crafty, to win arguments. We want that, don't we, as Americans? We want them to fight to the death. Can you imagine if you turn on the next presidential debate and perhaps there's a certain candidate who has not yet debated that takes the stage and you're looking forward to him going out there and just shutting everybody down. And what if he came up and was weak, like Paul? What if he mourned over the state of our country? What if there were tears shed for abortions that are continuing to take place and the total defilement of all that is good that we see in our society today? Not shouting, not seeking to win arguments, not seeking to put people down, not calling down fire from heaven, but turning into a puddle being broken over the sin of a nation. That would not meet our expectations, would it? We would be shocked. And that's what the Corinthians were about to experience. They were about to be shocked because the apostle wasn't coming in there like a politician from our day and age or even from the Corinthian culture. He was coming in like a man of God, a man of God who cared about truth, who cared about purity. And through that, they were going to see Christ's power active in His weakness. And really, the faith of the Corinthians, the existence of the Corinthian church was exhibit A, wasn't it? The fact that that church exists is evidence of the power of Jesus Christ working in the Apostle Paul. The reason that church existed was because Christ, through Paul, reached their hearts with the gospel. And the Corinthians would find the proof of Christ's power in him through his weakness. Again, this is from David Garland, his commentary. I really have gotten to like David Garland, the way he writes. He says, The Corinthians still fail to grasp that with God, weakness and power are two sides of the same coin. By sharing in Christ's weakness, he shares the same divinely ordained paradox that constituted the life and destiny of Jesus Christ. Comfort from suffering, life from death, strength from weakness, wisdom from foolishness. Divine power transforms the opposites from one to the other. Well, you could dwell on that for the next week, couldn't you? There's a lot to think about there. But this is what God is up to, cultivating power from weakness, wisdom from foolishness, that which looks so good in the world's eyes being turned into evil, filth, weakness, and what is so weak in the world's eyes being powerful for the gospel. And he goes on here in our passage to use Christ's weakness as an example and a defense for his own weakness. He says in verse 3, Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you but mighty in you, verse 4, For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. Christ was crucified because of weakness. Jesus humbled himself to be weak for us. Philippians 2 is the great passage that explains this in detail, that though the eternal Son of God existed in the form of God from all eternity, there was nothing that he was in need of. He humbled himself by taking on flesh and coming in the form of a man, being a servant and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was a willing weakness for us that He would be born of a woman. How humbling is that, that the Creator, eternal Creator of all things, 
would be found in swaddling cloths. So humiliating, so humbling. But it went all the way to the cross. And what Paul said to these Corinthians back in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is that the cross, the message of the cross, is power for those of us who are being saved. But for the world, for those who are perishing, that cross is foolishness. Another one of those amazing paradoxes. The cross, the instrument of death, it is the most powerful thing for us Christians. But to the world, it looks like victory over Jesus, that they got Him. It looks like weakness. looks like foolishness. For us, it's wisdom and power from God. And Christ is also powerful, Paul says here. He was crucified because of weakness, verse 4, yet He lives because of the power of God. This is the power of the triune God. Did you know that it says in Scripture that the Father raised the Son, that the Son raised Himself, and that the Spirit raised the Son from the dead? All three persons of the Trinity are credited with the power that raised Jesus from the dead. He was raised with the triune power of God. He's absolutely powerful, and His resurrection demonstrates that. Therefore, we Christians are weak as Christ was, but we are also powerful with His power. Paul references this when he says at the end of verse 4 that this is the power of God directed toward you. At the end of verse 3, this power of God is mighty in you. Jesus is mighty in you. And in this church in Corinth, Christ's power was going to be evidenced by their repentance. It was going to be evidenced by their turning from sin to embrace the Word of God that was given through Paul. This power is not to be seen in all kinds of signs and wonders, levitating, calling on angels, or anything like that. This power of God is going to be seen through repentance toward holiness in the church. You want to be a part of a powerful church? You want to be a a part of a church that has the power of God in it, flowing through it? It's going to be seen in our commitment to the holiness of God. It's going to be seen in our commitment to love to truth, to purity, that we wouldn't shy away from hard conversations, that we wouldn't run away from accountability. The power of God in us, the triune power of God at work in this church in Payson, Utah, is going to be seen when we are committed to God's will for our lives, sanctification, growth in holiness, growth in the truth. This is what Paul consistently links the power of God to. To the Thessalonians, in his opening passage in his first letter to them, he says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He says the gospel came with power, not just word that hit deaf ears and fell to the ground, but the gospel came to them in power. And then he defines that power in verse 9 by saying, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The power of God is seen in repentance, to reject the idols and to embrace God Himself. And that's how the power of God was to be seen in Paul's life, as it happened in the church. Well, further, further pressing his point, as an apostle who is now on the offensive in his letter, 
Paul turns the Corinthians to themselves. We get verses 5 and 6 here that are just some astounding verses. They're heavy verses. This is where we get this test. This is where it's exam time. I hope you have your number two pencil that's been sharpened, okay, because we're getting ready to take a test. And this is where Paul leads them in this conversation. Some of his final instruction here before he's going to see them in the flesh. This is what he commissions them to do. Verse 5, Paul says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Multiple times here in these two verses, you have test or exam being brought up. Let's break this down. If you're following along in your notes, you see that I have it broken down to uh, the different elements or the uh, mechanisms of this test, and let's, let's see what it is. First, let's talk about the testing itself. What does it mean to test? What does it mean to examine? Well, it means to put on trial. That's essentially what's happening here, to be put on trial to discover what is real and true. Paul here is telling them to test, meaning to establish reality. Discover what is real here. Don't just have your own ideas and run with that, but let's put your ideas to the test and let's see what reality says. The Corinthians were to subject themselves to their own analysis. They were to seek to approve themselves in the truth or if they really are in the faith, if they really do have Christ in them. They were to put themselves on the stand and question themselves. We would do well to note here also that this was a simple pass-fail test. This isn't a, a spectrum. There are no C-pluses given in this test, and there's no pass-minus or fail-plus, okay? It, it's none of that. This is a pass-fail, a simple pass-fail test without a spectrum. Either Christ is in you or Christ is not in you. You are either in the faith or you are not in the faith. That's what Paul is presenting to them. Christ cannot be 70% in any of us. He is either in us or He is not in us. Second element, let's talk about who was conducting the test. Amazingly, I think this is absolutely astonishingly, that the Corinthians here are called to employ their own discernment. We've now covered, this is, let's see, there are 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians and there are 13 chapters in 2 Corinthians. We are in the 29th chapter of dealing with Corinthians. Has there been anything in there that's given you confidence in their discernment? <laughs> there shouldn't really be much of anything. Um, there has been problem after problem after problem after problem after problem. And yet, let's remember, all the way back at the beginning of the first letter, Paul did call them saints, didn't he? He called them saints. They had lots of problems, but they were still saints. And he puts them here in the position where they would be able to discern for themselves whether they are in the faith or not. I want to show you 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I forgot to put this one in the computer this morning, so we'll have to go old school and turn pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 14, look at what Paul says in this passage. Again, I, they were lacking in so much discernment, but look at this. Look at what he says. 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, 
yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul says to these Corinthians, we have the mind of Christ. We are not natural people, Christians. We're spiritual people. And we have the mind of Christ. The Corinthians, for all the problems that they had, they were saints. They were spiritual. They had the mind of Christ. And here, Paul commissions them to use that discernment in testing themselves. Now, in the, uh, the Greek here, back in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, in the Greek, both times where it says test yourselves and where it says examine yourselves, the yourselves is in the emphatic. It's first in the sentence. You can do that in Greek. It's like a grab bag. Every sentence is like a grab bag where you can mix up the letters or the words almost and uh, you know, put it however you want. But they put things in certain order sometimes to express emphasis. And so what's happening here in verse 5 is the apostle saying, yourselves test yourselves. Yourselves examine You all, test you all, examine yourselves. Very, very emphatic. They were to be the ones questioning, and they were also to be the ones answering. Fascinating. And he says that instead of testing him, Paul says, instead of testing me, instead of testing this missionary group, you all are to test yourselves. And in so doing, they were, of course, to find out that Paul was who he said he was. Look again at verse 6. Paul says, I trust that you'll realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. That's what he expected the outcome of the test to be, was that they would understand who the real Christians are. Well, what's at stake in this test? Let's talk about that. What's at stake in this examination? Well, I guess I could sum that up by just saying everything. Everything is at stake. This is the most important pass-fail test of all time. It's answering the question, are you really saved? Are you really a Christian? You going to heaven when you die? All those ways that we put the spin on the same question, it's that most important question that we could ever answer. He says in verse 5 that you are to see through this testing, look at what's at stake, if you are in the faith. If you are in the faith. Verse, verses 3 and verses 5, or verses 3 and 5 rather, talk about Christ in you. He says, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test. So what's at stake is whether Jesus is in you. Now, that was not some special class of Christians that get Jesus dwelling in them. Perhaps some could think that, that it's only the really spiritual Christians who get Jesus living in them, and that's not the case. It's all Christians. There's an amazing promise that we have from Jesus back in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, starting in verse 19. Jesus taught this about what would happen in the hearts of His disciples. He said, After a little while, the world will no longer see Me, but you will see Me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in My Father, and you in Me, and I in you. He who has My commandments and keeps them is the one who loves Me. And he who loves Me will be loved by My Father, and I will love him and will disclose Myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. 
He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You see there, there's a, there's a promise for those who are disciples of Jesus that though the world doesn't see Him, He lives in us. They come to us and make their abode in us. What an amazing promise. In Galatians 2.20, Paul gives us that amazing verse, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that's true of every Christian. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, you live by the power of God, Jesus Himself empowering you. Christ is in you. And yet it's possible that some might fail the test. That's what he says at the end of verse 5. Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Unless indeed you are disqualified. Or as the King James Version says, except ye be reprobates. Interesting translation of that one. If they were found unapproved or disqualified in this test, then Jesus Christ was not in them. And let me just tell you that it is absolutely possible that in a church, not possible, it's probable and nearly certain, that in every local church there's a mix of people who are truly believers and those who are not. Now, of course, our hope is, especially in a good Bible teaching church, that the vast majority are believers. But there will always be tares that grow up with the wheat. That's just the way it is. There will always be unbelievers in the midst. We talked about in my Sunday school class today how in uh, the first epistle of John, not the gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 2, he says that there will be people who leave our fellowship. They'll go out, they'll deny Jesus, they'll stop believing the gospel, they'll say they're not Christians anymore, they'll leave, they're, do they're done, they're out. And he says they do that to show that they never were of us. It reveals that even though they were with us, they were around, they weren't truly of us in a spiritual sense. And so that's why it's really important that this test does exist to a degree for churches. It's important that we consider this reality and that we keep going back to the gospel. Not that we would find everybody who hasn't truly believed and throw them out, but that we would go back to them in love with the gospel that we would urge them to repent and to believe. Galatians chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul used a similar tactic with this church that was struggling. He says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Wow. Hebrews chapter 3, very similar in Hebrews, we find language that compares and contrasts believers and unbelievers in the fellowship. In chapter 3, it says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. True believers show themselves by holding firm to the end. That is God's work in them. It is God's Spirit in them causing them to persevere. Such a test here, when we again consider what's at stake, such a test gets to the eternal destiny of the soul based on whether a person has had authentic faith or counterfeit faith in the church. Another way to put it, is that this test drives us to the question of assurance. 
Assurance of salvation is at stake in this test. Are you in the faith? Is Jesus Christ in you? And I think it's fair to ask the question at this point, can we even know with certainty if we are in the faith? Can we know with certainty if Christ is in us? Can we know with absolute assurance that we will go to heaven when we die? And the answer is yes. If the answer wasn't yes, what's the point of giving this test? This test is put forth for a reason. But the source of our assurance cannot be creaturely. Our assurance cannot be in our own good deeds. We can't look at our lives and say, look how awesome I've been. Of course I'm saved. How could I not be going to heaven? I'm great. That's not good assurance because guess what? Tomorrow you wake up grumpy and you, I don't know, kick the dog, smack the bird, whatever you do in your house, and you're a sinner again. It can't be based on your good deeds. It also can't be based on comparison. That's not a good means of assurance because you could always find someone that you're better than and say, yeah, I'm going to heaven because at least I'm not that guy or that lady. But guess what? you also run across those Mother Teresas in the world, won't you? And they'll put you to shame. And you don't want to play the comparison game anymore after that. You give how much, you sacrifice how much, you did this, you did that. <gasps> those two methods are not your source of assurance. Your source of assurance has to be Jesus Christ Himself. Your source of assurance has to be the living God who gives you salvation as a gift apart from your own efforts, who imputes to you the very righteousness of God from the outside, bringing it into your heart, not calling you to cultivate up within yourself perfection that would earn for yourself a good standing with God, but for you to look to the cross, which to the world is foolishness, to the world it's, it's weakness, but to you it's power as you look to the empty cross because Jesus is risen in power. He's at the right hand of God, and you look to Him and you are forgiven. He's like that, that bronze serpent that Moses would hold up in the, in the wilderness, and when the Israelites would look, they would be healed. You too, look to the cross, the Son of Man who was lifted up for the forgiveness of sins, that when you see Him and believe, you're forgiven once for all, never to have those sins come pouring back on you, never again to be in a condemned state, never again to be under the wrath of God, but always and forever being clean and forgiven as a gift of His grace, being a vessel of mercy where God has poured out His love richly upon you through His Holy Spirit. The testimony, the confession that He's put in your mouth that Jesus is Lord, God has raised Him from the dead. Hang on to that. That is your assurance. You won't find assurance anywhere else but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Every other religion out there points you to yourself and you will despair. Every other religion out there says, perform, 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 and maybe one day you'll be good enough. But God has said, you can't. God has said, you'll never be good enough. Sin has covered all that you do. Sin has polluted every motivation of your heart. It has since conception. There is nothing you can do to clean yourself. There's this sticky black tar that is all over your soul. And the only way to be washed clean and to have white garments and to walk in them with Jesus forever is to be saved by His grace, is to be saved by His mercy. 
by grace, through faith, in Christ alone is the only way you can be saved. And it's the only way you can have assurance of your salvation. As soon as you start looking away from Jesus, you start losing assurance. The very moment you look away, you lose assurance. I think it was Martin Luther who said, when I look at myself, I can't imagine how I could ever be saved. But when I look to Jesus, I can't imagine how I could ever be lost. That has to be our mindset. We can have assurance. We have the mind of Christ as Christians, and this is where we go over and over again, back to the gospel. But those who do not have true, genuine faith, they cannot have assurance. Assurance isn't for everybody. You can't go find a random person on the street and say, you're going to heaven. It just can't happen. Assurance is only for those who have truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Those are the only ones who can have assurance. And some will fail this test. Even though I believe Paul understood that the Corinthians, by and large, would see themselves as saved, there would also be some in Corinth who would fail this test. John MacArthur, in his commentary, said, The apostle was confident that the majority of the Corinthians would find their faith genuine and experience the blessings of assurance. Those who did fail the test could also experience those blessings if they repented and exercised genuine faith in Christ. You can have assurance if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've never had genuine faith in Jesus Christ, as the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised to you, is it? None of us have assurance of what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes. But we can have assurance that no matter what happens, we will be with God forever. We will be saved by His grace if we believe in Jesus Christ. So that's what's at stake in this test. And finally, I want to close with what criteria should be employed in this test. How can you know if you have authentic faith? Well, let me just give you two criteria to employ as you seek to understand whether you have authentic faith or not. Number one, do you fully trust in His finished work? Do you fully trust in the finished work of Christ? Do you see that there is no room for your own laurels? There's no room for your own achievements. There's no room for your own works. Do you see that? Do you see that there's no room for outward conformities? Just going through the motion, showing up and doing the thing and saying, God, I did all this for you. Will you please let me into heaven? There's no room for that. Do you see that? Do you fully trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection? And secondly, though we are saved by faith alone, that faith will evidence itself by the way that we live. And so a second question that is very legitimate to ask yourself is has this faith revealed itself in committed love and humble repentance in your life? Has the fruit of your faith been repentance and love for Jesus Christ? In 1 Corinthians 16.22, toward the very end of that letter, Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And there's that word we talked about earlier, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do you love the Lord? Is He your master? and you love Him as a good master. 2 Timothy 2, 
24 to 26, this may seem like an interesting cross-reference, but I'll share with you something specific from this passage. Paul writes to Timothy saying, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What's he saying there? That repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. Repentance leads to that. You have to escape the snare of the devil. The whole world is in the power of the evil one, and we do that through faith in Christ, and that genuine faith is always coupled with repentance. You can't claim to have knowledge of the truth if you're unrepentant, basically, because repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. So there are only two possible outcomes regarding this test, and you should have a a response that's fitting to each of the outcomes. It's like uh, some of you go to the doctor a lot, and you get blood work done a lot, and your blood work tells you something, and you need to have a proper response, don't you? Your levels tell you something, and you need to respond accordingly. Well, this test is no different. There's an outcome. There needs to be a response. If you pass the test, praise God for that. If you pass this test that you are in the faith, that Christ is in you, that you have genuinely trusted in Jesus as your Savior, that you're not trying to be your own Savior, praise God for His grace. Praise God for His mercy. Thank God for the love with which He loved us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And embrace the Word of God through His apostles. And that's really Paul's point here. He expects most of them to say, well, yeah, of course we're saved. Well, his point is, well, how did you get that way? It was Christ through me, wasn't it? Now listen to what I'm instructing you. So for all Christians, if we have the Spirit of God in us, we are now to embrace the Word of God and to seek to pursue holiness, or as Paul says earlier in this letter, to perfect holiness in the sight of the Lord. If you are a genuine Christian, that should be your ultimate desire, to perfect holiness. If you fail the test, if you take this test and find yourself to not have genuine faith, to not have assurance of salvation, to not have any hope that you are in the faith or that Christ is in you, Repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. Again, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for lunch. Today is the day to believe in Jesus Christ. I've shared the gospel with people before where they just turn and walk away sad after hearing about the grace of God. You're offering someone a free gift, God's grace, an eternal gift, the most precious gift, and yet people still walk away sad. Don't walk away sad today. Embrace the gift of Jesus Christ. Embrace the gift of salvation that no one can ever take away from you, that you would have imparted to your heart once for all time God Himself who cleanses you from all that filth and gives you a hope and a future. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He's yours for the taking. Would you have Him? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who have not embraced grace. Convict them of their sin and draw them near to the place where there is restoration and reconciliation forever. That they would truly today believe 
on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Help us to be lights shining in a dark place. Help us to point people over and over again to the cross of Christ, that we would lead people to the one who is able to save our souls. I thank you so much for all these lessons we've gotten from this book. Help us to not just relegate these things to head knowledge, but that they would soak down into our hearts by the power of your Spirit and that we would make application today, this week, and in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.